The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. And last Sunday night we saw the birth of Jesus Christ from Luke 2. This Thursday, Lord willing, for Christmas Eve, we'll learn about the coming of the light of the world from John 1. But let me remind you where we've been on Sunday mornings, because on Sunday mornings we've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 1, I titled the sermon, Introducing the King, because Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the genealogies, the promises, all of the needs that we have, all the yeses and amen are found in Christ Jesus. That's Matthew 1. Also from Matthew 1, we learn the very name Jesus means... Yahweh saves. They call His name Jesus because He saves His people from their sins. And we saw that when Jesus enters your life, it radically changes your life, as we saw in Mary and Joseph. In Matthew 2, we saw that not everybody takes the good news of Jesus' birth as good news. And we saw the response of Herod. And I titled the sermon, Who Will Be King? Herod actually worshipped his identity, his freedom, and his power. And therefore, he did not want Christ to be king. But this morning, we continue to preach through the Gospel of Matthew with chapter 3. And the title of today's sermon is Receive Your King. Now, don't feel like you've been cheated on the Christmas narrative, though it's at least 25 25 years or so after Matthew chapter 2. But here in Receive Your King, we see why the Christ King came and how we respond to him correctly. So if you have notes uh, or if you're following on a screen at home, the first note you'll see is number one receive your king. And that's the first half of the text. So look with me in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching. Now that phrase, in those days, there are no wasted words in the Bible because they're all breathed out by God. And so the setting is being carefully set. If you compare it with Matthew 2, verse 1, it said that happened in the days of Herod. So a very specific time. But here in Matthew 3, it just says, in those days. I think the reason is to show, here's some general time that didn't seem to be an important time. Now let's continue in verse 1. Came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What's a wilderness? It's the middle of nowhere. So at a seemingly unimportant time, in a seemingly unimportant place, that's the setting, comes the most important message. So now verse 2. In a seemingly unimportant time, seemingly unimportant place, John the Baptist is preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is at least 25 years after Matthew 2. Christ here is about 30 years old. But John the Baptist has come to prepare people for the coming of the king. So verse 2 really is the key verse. We're going to spend some significant time on it. Verse 2 begins with the word repent. Now the word repent is the key word of the passage, so I have to take special time to make sure we understand it. Greek, uh, when I first learned it, I knew just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> and so if you know that much, you can mess a lot up. And if you look up the Greek word for repent, it's metanoeo, which literally means change of mind. And if you know a little Greek, you can butcher it. That's not what it means in context. It means much more than change of mind. Uh, a, Hebrew, a Greek lexicon explains it this way. It is to have a change of self heart and mind, that abandons former dispositions and results in a new self. I'm going to quote a lot of experts so that you know this isn't just me. The ESV Study Bible says it this way, Repentance is not merely a change of mind, but a radical change in one's life as a whole. Craig Blomberg, the author, writes this, Repentance in Greek is more than a change of mind or attitude. 
but a change of action as well. It is to change your entire way of life, resulting in a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. One more expert, D.A. Carson, writes, to repent is not merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief or even less doing penance. Instead, it is a radical transformation of the entire person a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action and including overtones of grief, which results in fruit keeping with repentance. To repent fundamentally implies that one's actions are off course and need radical change. Now at home, I have four young children, and so very often we're talking about repentance. <laughs> and we try and differentiate it from counterfeit repentance. I've noticed that children, even before they can speak, can understand when they've been told not to do something, and they can understand the difference between repentance. This week, my youngest, who's only one, was going towards the fireplace, which is a dangerous spot in our house. And so I told him no. But instead of repenting, he looked behind and did that thing with one eye, he wants to see what I'm going to do. And with the other eye, he keeps moving towards the thing he knows he's not supposed to do. <laughs> Rather than repentance, he was engaging in counterfeit repentance. Let me tell you some common counterfeit repentances. One of them is self-preservation. If you come home and your siblings have been wrestling with one another, and their joint that used to go this way now also goes the other way, <laughs> and you ask the child who seems to be guilty, what happened wrong? You can see when the lights turn on in their mind and they realize, I'm about to get in trouble. So in self-preservation, let me say, I am so sorry. That is counterfeit repentance. Counter repentance is much more than remorse. Repentance is much more than regret. You might say, man, I really wish I wouldn't have eaten all that pizza last night. That is not repentance. That is regret. Let me tell you ways that we do this as adults when we become more sophisticated sinners. We counterfeit repentance by saying, I'm sorry, but adding innumerable caveats. Yes, I probably shouldn't have done that, but if you knew my life circumstances, if you knew how bad my parents were, if you knew how hard of a week I've been having, or how rough of a year I've had, or how busy I am, or how stressed I am, then you would know that I have the right to act the way I've acted. We blame shift. We rationalize that is not repentance. Or have you ever heard an insincere apology? Hey, if you feel like I've hurt you, then I guess I'm sorry you feel that way. That is not repentance. Or to say it even less subtly, if you're so thin-skinned that you can't handle my correction, then psh, my bad, I guess. Or repeated apology also is not repentance. It is not repentance in the Bible to continue to say I'm sorry without change for the same thing. It is also not repentance to spiritualize away sin. This is a common thing in our Christianese language. Only Christians even try this one. It is when you say, I don't need to repent because, you know, Jesus has fully accepted me as I am, and therefore he doesn't want me to change. Now here's a verse that I'm going to ask you to write down. It is 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Let me say it again. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Please write it down so you can read it later because it has a huge amount of importance theologically on what repentance is. Here's what it says. For godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Okay, did you catch that? Godly sorrow repents to salvation, but the verse continues. But worldly sorrow produces death. Did you catch that? They're both sorry. They're both sorry. 
But one sorrow produces repentance unto salvation, and the other sorrow goes to death. Did you know that you can feel very sorry for something and not repent? Let me show you an example from the Bible. It's Exodus 10, verse 16 and 17. After the eighth plague, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, said this. Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron. Don't miss hastily. Quick feelings. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Boy, that sounds like repentance. Verse 17. Now, therefore, forgive my sin. Sounds like repentance. Only this once. And plead with the Lord your God to remove this death from me. Are you catching why it's not real repentance? It's self-preservation. I don't want the consequences. I don't want to die. I'm really sorry. But if you know the rest of the plagues, they don't stop at number eight. (laughs) They're still number nine and number ten because Pharaoh doesn't actually repent and let God's people go. In fact, even after he lets God's people go, he gets in the chariot and chases them all to the Red Sea where God has to crush them because he never repents. You see, to feel sorry is not to repent. But most of us don't know what repentance is. Do you know how we see repentance? We see in a general habit of life what happens after someone says they're sorry. Look in verse 8 of Matthew 3. Here's what John the Baptist says. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, repentance has fruit that shows an actual work of God has happened. So at the heart level, Repentance looks like this. Unflinching honesty over your sin. You own it all. No argument over the consequences. You accept them all. Heart that's broken over offending God himself, knowing who you've sinned against. Let me share with you probably an illustration you know. I think it's the strongest illustration of repentance in the Bible. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know of King David. A man after God's own heart who saw a woman who was not his wife, but he wanted that woman. And in order for him to have that woman, he had to murder that woman's husband. And so David orchestrated homicide, and then he engaged in adultery. And then David did what sinners do when we sin. For a long time, he deceived himself. He rationalized away his sin. Who knows exactly what he thought, but he was able to say things to himself to convince himself that he deserved what he had done, that he had the right to do what he had done, and surely God would understand what he had done. To use a pop psychology term, he was gaslighting himself. He was deceiving himself into thinking he could not have done anything worthy of repenting for. But then God, in his mercy, sent David a friend, and the friend's name is Nathan the prophet. And Nathan told David a story, a story about one person who owned lots of cattle, lots of sheep, and lots of possessions, and then a story about a person who owned just one little lamb, and loved that little lamb, and named that little lamb, and cared for that little lamb, and put that lamb to sleep, and fed the lamb, and woke the lamb, and loved the lamb, but the person who owned all the sheep stole that one land from that person. And Nathan said, what should we do about this man in your kingdom? And David says, he should be punished. He should be killed. He should face justice. And then Nathan, of course, famously said, David, thou art the man. Let me pause at this moment to say, we should actually praise God for Nathan's in our life. 
who help us see about ourselves what we have been suppressing and denying. Someone who help us come clean. But then David did what a man after God's heart really would do. David actually repented. He acknowledged all his sin. He didn't explain any of it away. He didn't blame his parents. He didn't blame Saul. He didn't blame the, the roughness of being a king and all the difficulty and stress of leading a kingdom. He didn't equivocate about the consequences. Any consequences for his sin, he endured with humility. And he wrote against thee and thee only have I sinned. Knowing that his sin, of course, affected other people, but ultimately all sin is against God. You see, for us to repent means that we have to lay bare our lies and totally come clean. You might say, Pastor, you're taking a really long time on this. Why take so long on the word repent? You have the Bible in front of you. Would you look in chapter 4, please, of Matthew? In chapter 4, after Jesus endures temptation from Satan himself, he begins his earthly ministry. Would you look down at verse 17? You might have one of those Bibles that even says something like, Jesus begins his ministry. Notice verse 17. What is the very first thing Jesus says when he begins his ministry? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So why does John begin the gospel with repent? And why does Jesus begin his gospel with repent? And why do we almost never hear the word repent? Why is it so uncommon to hear the word repent among American Christians? I'm going to give you three answers that I think hold up. Here's the first one. In America, we've been told the lie that Jesus doesn't radically transform you. Jesus is just something you add to your life. Charles Swindoll said it this way. The problem in America is the misconception that we can add Christ to our lives but not subtract sin. It is a change in belief without a change in behavior. It is revival without repentance. Swindoll is right on the money. Here's a second reason that we don't hear the word repent in our churches in America. Because secondly, we think faith can exist without repentance. Did you know that faith and repentance are two distinct but inseparable sides to the same coin? In fact, in Mark's gospel in chapter 1, when he records Jesus' beginning of his ministry, he writes, repent and believe, Jesus said, for the gospel is at hand. You see, to repent requires you to believe, and to believe requires you to repent. I like to say it this way, we both turn from and turn to Jesus. Both are necessary. Here's a third reason, though, why I think we don't hear the word repent in America, though it's Jesus' first public ministry word. I think in our cultural milieu in America, it sounds unloving. Even though it's actually the most loving thing you could say. Now, Galatians 4 tells us that at the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Meaning God sent Jesus at exactly the right time and exactly the right place. So, of course, we can't question when God sent Jesus. But my imagination wonders... What if God had sent Jesus to be born in America? What if Jesus was born in like the 1980s and he started his ministry in the early 2000s or something like that? And as a 30-year-old, he's walking around the country and he begins saying, repent. Do you know what I think would happen? I think if Jesus was in public with a lot of Americans and he said, repent, then I think there would be a flash mob of Americans and they would start singing, I am beautiful no matter what they say. 
and words can't bring me down. I am beautiful in every single way. Yes, words can't bring me down. Oh no, Jesus, don't you bring me down today. That's Christina Aguilera. I can't sing it as well as her. <laughs> but it's so strange to think that Jesus' first word is repent, change your entire life so that you can receive me, and yet we think it's unloving. How perverse is our American philosophy then? You see, if you knew someone who had a Keurig coffee machine, and at home they made a cup of coffee every day, and in their fridge they had creamer, and they'd put a little creamer in their coffee every day, and then you were watching the news, and you found out that that creamer was recalled because it contained poison. It was a bad batch. So your friend every day is putting a little bit of poison in their coffee, which over time could seriously harm and or kill them. Is it unloving to tell them to throw out the bad batch of creamer? No, it's loving to tell them to repent. Matthew's gospel and Jesus' gospel record the same thing. John the Baptist and Jesus began by saying, repent. We hate that because repentance is painful, but it's only painful initially, and it's wonderful now and eternally. David wrote when he repented in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. But I acknowledge my sin to you, and I no longer covered it or deceived myself. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Repentance is initially painful, but it is both now and eternally wonderful. So look back now in verse 2 of Matthew 3. Why is John saying, repent now? Verse 2, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a massive topic, and people have written very, very long books on the kingdom of heaven, and I've had to write long book reviews on the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven is a big concept interwoven all through the Bible. It refers to God's reign, to God's rule. But here it's at hand because the king has come. Therefore, we understand the kingdom of heaven best when we understand it this way. Here's how we receive Jesus as king. For example, do you remember what Jesus told Nicodemus was prerequisite to enter the kingdom of heaven? You must first what? Be born again. And here, if you are to be part of the kingdom of heaven, you must first what? Repent. Because they're synonyms. To repent is to believe. To believe is to repent. And that's what it means to be born again so that you can receive the king. Now, this is John's purpose. And it's urgent that he prepares people to repent so that they can receive their king. So look now in verse 3. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that would be John the Baptist, prepare the way of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. Make his path straight. So John's whole purpose is to share this message. Repent to receive your king. Now verse 4. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And anyone who grew up in church remembers this verse and remembers thinking, John was a strange dude. You know, That's all we think of when we think of this verse. But I, it's actually rather ironic that the reason it's recorded is so that you would think that John is a plain, nondescript person. 
In the wilderness, people did dress this way, and people did eat this way. So again, Matthew's purpose actually, in verse 1, is to say, at a time when no one cared, in a place where no one knew, was a person who no one would notice, sharing a message about who everyone needed. You see? So the point is, repent to receive your king. Now, if you're going to repent, you'll see fruit of repentance. And so look in verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Don't trip over this verse. This is a big deal. Don't you remember where John started his ministry? In the wilderness. But look who's coming to the wilderness. People from the city. People from the capital. People from all over. I mean, there's no cars, right? There's no trains, there's no automobiles. That means they're getting on a donkey and they're walking miles to get out to the middle of nowhere because that's how powerful this message is. So they're coming from all over because they need what John is talking about. They need the king and they need to repent. And you know you repent when you publicly demonstrate that. And so verse 6, And they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. Those two things, like repentance and faith, baptism and confession, are actually inseparable things. Have you ever seen a baptism, if if you've seen a good one, if you've seen one well done, then before the person is baptized, they share their testimony of how God saved them. And they share that God saved them because they are a sinner. But now they've recognized their sin and they've found forgiveness in Jesus. And that's what's happening in verse 6. They're being baptized in confession of their sin. I need a Savior. And so they're being baptized to show that they've received Him. Received the one who John the Baptist promises is coming. So those who repent bear fruit. And the fruit is public acknowledgement of their need for the Lord in baptism. But now we're going to see a contrast of people who receive their king with people who won't. And so now verses 7 through 12 have serious and sobering reminders for those who won't receive their king. John's message, repent to receive your king. But now look in verse 7. I'm going to read 7 through 10, and then we'll go back through it more slowly, okay? Verse 7. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood, that is like offspring of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. If you're totally new to the Gospels and you don't know who the Pharisees are, then we should pause to introduce them to you. Or if you've grown up in church and you think you know that the Pharisees are, well, they're the bad guys and that's all you know about them, let's take a little more time on them. The Pharisees and Sadducees, I always just call them the Jewish religious leaders, the JRL in in my notes, they held to three common qualities, and I want you to see how common they still are today. Here are the three qualities that were true of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Three things. They held to man-made rules, extra-biblical authority, and they looked to their moral performance as a means of salvation. All right, So they made up man-made rules, They had extra-biblical authority other than Scripture that they gave great authority to. And third, they believed by their moral performance they could earn their own salvation. Now, those are a lot more common than you think, right? Suddenly, these people don't seem as distant and far away. 
They made up over 635 man-made rules. They were oral traditions that they made up, and they would share them with people. These were lay people. They were not paid for this work. They just loved making up man-made rules and expecting other people to follow them. Those oral traditions were eventually recorded in what's called the Mishnah, or the Talmud. And if you go to Barnes & Noble, you can find it there. So everything that they made up is actually still pretty common. I mean, don't you know people who have made up their own way to live and think we ought to live by it? Don't you know people who look to an authority other than Scripture as if it was breathed out by God? And don't you know people who think that they'll be good enough to earn whatever salvation there is? See, the Pharisees are actually a lot like most Americans today, and that's why they hate being told, repent. See, no one who thinks they're a good person wants to be told, repent. How dare you tell me to repent? Don't you know that in my social revolution, I'm on the right side of history? Don't you know that everybody in our culture thinks that I am aware of the things that matter, and I'm in the right movement, and I'm on the right side, and I'm in the right camp, and I have the right authority, and the right people approve of me? How dare you tell me, repent? This is why wide is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life. Our pride blinds us to our need to repent. But let me now slow down and look at the verses very carefully because the truths in them are so needed today. So now I'm going to take one verse at a time and I'll make a point about each. Here's the point of verse 7. You and I individually must repent. We cannot spectate other people's repentance. Verse 7. Notice John the Baptist saw the Pharisees and Sadducees coming. But why are they coming? Do you remember from verse 5? Because everybody from the city's coming. Hey, something big's going on here. Everybody's going to this thing. We should go too and just watch. Here's why this is a very important point to us. Spectation does not equal participation. Spectation does not equal participation. Each one of us is responsible to repent for our own sin to receive our king. We can't just be around people who do. John notices their hypocrisy, and that's why he sarcastically says to them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You see, they are just around, but they haven't personally come to recognize their sin and their need for Jesus. Now verse 8, here's my second point about repentance. Repentance is continual and observable in your life. Verse 8, these are present tense verbs. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. At the end of October, I preached a sermon called Reformation Sunday from Romans 3, 21 through 26, and shared how God used Martin Luther to spark the Reformation. On the day that Martin Luther wrote the 95 theses on the Wittenberg Castle, or castle door, here was his first thesis. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. And he's right. Now let me explain a point theologically that's very important. The moment you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, you are eternally saved. The moment you do that. You do not have to earn your salvation with your behavior. That's not what I'm talking about. It's not what Jesus is talking about. Fruit is not the root cause of your life. Fruit, by definition, is the demonstration that you're attached to a life source that is not you. 
That life source is Jesus. Therefore, when people are calling on repentance, they're asking you to turn from your trust in yourself and trust in the accomplishment of Jesus. But that will be evidenced in fruit over a lifetime. Another illustration to help you think of it. Because repentance means a turning of your entire life, think of how things can turn at different speeds. If you're walking and you turn around, it happens immediately. This is like the moment you come to Christ. You turn, you're immediately saved, and there's some visible demonstration right away. But if you notice, it's harder to turn a bicycle around. Or think of how much harder it is to turn a cruise ship around. So brother and sister, be encouraged by this. The moment you turn to Christ, he saves you. But your whole life, he's going to be helping you turn some of those larger struggles in the right direction. Now, your salvation's not in jeopardy. You're saved the moment you turn to Christ and trust in him. But he is still at work in you, transforming you from one degree of glory to the next. And it's like turning those bigger vehicles. Now, your whole life will show the fruit of it. So let me say this sentence, and I'll say it twice because it's very important. Salvation is not a fleeting experience. It is an enduring reality. Salvation is not a fleeting experience. It is an enduring reality. Now, many times I've said this, and people come up with me later, and they talk to me, or they set up an appointment, and you're welcome to do that. But when they hear that, they get very upset because they have a son or a father or a cousin or a daughter or a spouse who once prayed a prayer, and there's been no fruit from now until then. And because God loves us, he tells us the truth. Do you remember the parable of the soils where the, the seed gets on all sorts of soil? And remember there's that soil where, like, for a minute, it seems like something's happening, and then it's gone, right? See, salvation is not a momentary experience that fle is fleeting. It is an enduring reality. We must bear fruit in keeping with repentance because that shows that we are connected to the root, Jesus Christ, that we are alive. Number nine, therefore we must not presume. So the third thing I'll say about repentance, repentance means I must not presume, but I must personally seek the Lord. So verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You notice that the Pharisees, their point is, I don't need to repent because I'm from the right stock. I have the right pedigree. I have the right nationality. I have the right heritage. I have the right peer group. I have the right parents. Many still feel that way. I don't need to come to Jesus. I'm from the right home. I'm from the right country. I'm from the right church. I'm from the right background. I don't need to actually turn to Christ myself. But you do. Repentance, to quote John Piper, means a call for people to stop relying on anything they are by birth or have achieved by their effort and to turn to rely on the free mercy of God. You see, when John is telling them to repent, he's telling them because there's one coming. And who's the one who's coming? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so we cannot be saved because we think we're from the right background. Craig Blomberg writes soberly, Christians in every age must heed John's warning to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Too often in the history of the church, people have trusted in living in a Christian country or being raised in a Christian family or holding membership or even office in a local church. And even in verbal claims to have repented, yet without fruit, 
of a changing life and perseverance and trust in Jesus, all such grounds of trust prove futile. But now verse 10, perhaps the most sobering of the verses. Those who resist repentance will be judged. Verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. If a tree is dead, you cut it down. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, because a living tree will bear fruit, but those that are dead, notice, are thrown into the fire. So now, verse 11, John continues this sobering reminder, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, the Lamb of God, is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and His purifying work to make you acceptable to God. But now verse 12, His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will clear His threshing floor and gather His wheat into the barn, but the chaff He will burn with unquenchable fire. This past week, my mom and dad were down here from Detroit. They made the trip, and we had the best time with them. And the first day that my dad was here, I was still at church, and he was trying to be very helpful to me, so when I came home, I noticed he had been raking in the backyard. <laughs> but dad is from Detroit, and he spent his whole life up there, so he's never seen pine straw before. So he raked up all my pine straw. <laughs> so he got all my leaves and interworked it with all the pine straw, and he was about halfway doing it. The poor guy, I mean, he's at an age where this was a lot of work for him. So he sat down to rest, and my neighbor over the, the fence said hi to him, and Dad said hi back, and he said, so what are you doing back there? And my dad said, oh, my son must have left all this stuff all over the yard, so I'm trying to, trying to pick it up for him. And my neighbor very politely said, oh, that's called pine straw. We use it as mulch, and it actually costs a lot of money. <laughs> so dad has mixed it all up. And now if you were to drive by my house, you would see, I think it's 22 plastic bags full of leaves and pine straw at my curb. <laughs> because I could no longer separate the wheat from the chaff. You know, because you're from here, you get out a blower and you just blow off the leaves. Now, that description is a little bit like what's being said in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will separate the wheat from the chaff. We're not from this era, but you would take um, a shovel, and you would just scoop up everything, the grain that has value and the chaff that has none, and you toss it in the air. And when the wind blows, it blows away the chaff, because that's of no value and you don't need it, and you keep the grain. Now, here's something that's very interesting that Jesus says. Normally, chaff is highly flammable and it's burned, and it's gone. But did you see how Jesus describes the burning of the chaff here in verse 12? He will burn it with unquenchable fire. You know what I've noticed this year, especially all these people have been talking about how much we care about lives. We need to watch out for each other. We need to social distance. We need to be careful because we care about lives. We care about saving lives. We want to preserve lives. And as Christians who believe in Genesis 1 and 2, that every human is made in the image of God, we, more than any, believe in the sanctity of life. But did you know that life on this earth is a vapor and a mist and it's gone? But then afterwards we exist for eternity. If this morning I had rope up here, if I had a white rope and six inches of it were green, 
And those six inches represented your life. And I walked down with the white rope, and I went down the steps and through the hallway, and I walked all the way through Raleigh, and then in North Carolina, and then down through the South, and then down through Florida, and somehow was able to walk down through South America, and then around to the top, and then around through Canada and Michigan, and got on 75, and went all the way back down to Raleigh again with the white rope and did that, and then did it again. And then again, and then again, and then I did it a hundred times, then I did it a thousand times, then I did it ten thousand times, then I did it ten million times, then I did it ten quintillion times. I'm not even a drop in eternity. So if we say, I care about saving lives, then why aren't we warning people that if they don't have Christ, they will endure a fire that is unquenchable? A place where Christ said, the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. If you don't know Jesus, your eternity is conscious torment that never ends. How is that not something that would compel us to plead with people to come to be, to be saved? God has provided a way of salvation of the one thing that is eternally important, our standing before our God. So notice now the second half of the passage, which is much faster, verses 13 through 17. Rejoice in the Savior, the true King of Kings. Verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, well, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And John, of course, is right. People are being baptized to confess their sins. So if anyone needs to be baptized, it's John. It's surely not Jesus. But now, why is the king baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. Look in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So why was Jesus baptized? So that he could identify with the sinners that he is going to die for. He is baptized to fulfill all righteousness so that he can show, I have come not just to be born in a manger, but to go to a cross. I've come so the unquenchable fire can be spared for those who turn and trust in me. Verse 16 tells us that Jesus is the king on whom the Spirit satisfyingly rests. Verse 16, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. We may not realize the significance of that phrase, but if you know the Old Testament, when a king was anointed, the spirit would give him special gifting and special power. But because the Old Testament kings would all turn from the Lord, they would lose that gifting. They would lose that power. But see, the spirit rested on Jesus because he's the true king who never fails. Now verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I love this passage because we have God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, all together, the three in one, all present, all showing their unity in this salvation that they have wrought. But again, there's some clues here that an Old Testament reader would know well. This is my beloved Son. That's Psalm 2, verse 1. It was sung at the coronation of every king. But see, now the final king is here. And that phrase, in whom I'm well pleased, that's from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. It was about the suffering servant who would suffer to save his people. So here's the King of Kings, the Savior of sinners, Jesus. Now, if God the Father is well pleased in his son Jesus, that should be a stark contrast to how 
God the Father stands towards those who are opposed to Him. Romans 8, verse 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not please God. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8, For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So those who are unsaved are not pleasing to God. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Do you know this one? And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Those who don't have faith do not please God. So God is well pleased in Jesus. And yet all of us, apart from Jesus fail to please God. We fail to please God because we're sinners, because we're sinners so desperately needing repentance. Jared Wilson wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition recently on 12 signs of true repentance. I'll run through them very quickly. Number one, to truly repent means we name our sin as sin. Do not spin it. Do not excuse it. Number two, we actually confess before we were caught. Number three, if we were found out, then we come totally clean and the truth does not have to be pulled from us like teeth. Number four, we have a willingness and eagerness to make things right, to make amends. Number five, we're patient with people we've hurt without jumping to defend ourselves. Number six, we're patient with people we hurt without trying to guilt them into forgiving us. Number seven, we're willing to confess our sin even if serious consequences may await us. Number eight, we grieve the consequences of our sin and do not bristle under them or resent them. Number nine, if our sin involved a, an addictive pattern of behavior, we don't neglect to seek help from a counselor or a 12-step program or a rehabilitation center. Number 10, we don't resent accountability, pastoral rebuke, or church discipline. Number 11, we find comfort not in the freement of our consequences, but in the love of God. Number 12, we are humble and teachable. Now, if those 12 things scared you, they scare all sinners. And do you know why? Do you know why we don't repent? Because we want to save face. We want to be seen and thought of a certain way. And if we repent, we might face shame and embarrassment. But let me tell you what this King of Kings, who was totally innocent, did regarding shame and embarrassment. Jesus though he had never sinned and never done anything wrong and fulfilled all righteousness, chose to suffer shame and embarrassment. Do you know why they put a crown of thorns on him? To laugh at him. Oh, you called yourself king? Then wear this. Do you remember what they put ahead of the cross on the placard? King of the Jews. And even that wasn't enough for the Pharisees. They told Pilate, no, no, no. Say he said he's the king of the Jews. Remember they had him wear a purple robe? So that after his back had been 39 times lashed with a cat of nine tails, they would put a robe on him, and as he's bleeding, it would stick into his body, and then they'd pull it out again. Why? So they could laugh at him. They stripped him of his clothing. What'd they do with it? Do you remember? They gamble over it so they can make fun of him. And why strip somebody naked anyway? To humiliate them. Maybe you grew up Catholic. In a Catholic church, there's always a loincloth on Jesus, but in reality, there was nothing he was completely removed of everything so that he could be mocked and embarrassed and shamed. And he took that shame and embarrassment willingly so that those who truly repent will never face shame or condemnation. To put it in a sentence, Jesus was exposed, literally, so that your sins could be covered eternally. That's the king. The king who comes and bears shame and scoffing rude so that in our place, condemned, he can stand. Michael Reeves writes, If you and I repent to receive our king, 
Then he quotes this. We not only come to share the Father's pleasure in Jesus, we come to share the life Jesus enjoys before the Father. We stand in Jesus with his own unspotted confidence before his Father. And there the Spirit draws us to live out life and sonship. Jesus died and lived in our place so that we might live and die in his. You see, we fear repentance because we want to save face. But if you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, he bears all our shame in his body and offers only covering to clean us as white as snow. The beauty of the gospel is that when we repent, and receive our beloved king. Then with David we can say, blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I said, I will confess my iniquity to the Lord, he forgave. So this morning, repent to receive your king. Let's pray. God, I thank you that the moment a person turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus, they are eternally saved. Let me pray some very specific things regarding Emmanuel Baptist Church. Please do not let anybody here think that they are saved because they grew up here or because their parents went here or because they've served in an office here. If they do not personally turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, then they face something incredibly serious, unquenchable fire. But Jesus Christ did not come to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. That's the good news. The good news is there is someone who's come to take all our shame and our sin on his body, and he will forgive us and remove our sin as far as the east is from the west if we just turn to him and trust in him. Lord, please do not let anybody in Raleigh think that because they're from a Christian country, or because they know some things about God, or because they've grown up singing some songs about the gospel, that they are saved. They must personally turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Lord, also give us the kind of burden that you have for those who would perish eternally. Surely we must and should care about the lives of everyone. But as Christians, we care not only about temporal suffering, but much more so about eternal suffering. And so urge us to share the good news with anybody we can. But Lord, also I pray for those who are believers. By your grace, those of us who have come to know Christ, thank you, Lord, that you've saved us and forgiven us. And so now, Lord, help us to not have worldly sorrow that leads to death, but godly sorrow that leads to salvation. And maybe, though you've turned us the right direction, there still are sins that are like turning a bike or turning a cruise ship, and they're taking a lot of strength to pull. Help us to not fight as you turn the wheel. Help us to trust that when you're bringing our sin to the light, that's for our good. Because these are things that harm us and rob us from the good intentions you have for us. Perhaps the scariest thing is to tell someone about something that we think we could never ask or never admit but it's much worse to live with it because then your bones wax old and they groan all night and day. So Lord, why should we as Christians be afraid to ask for help when Jesus has covered our sin eternally? So give us confidence in the gospel that allows us to do death and battle to mortify the deeds of the flesh and to find the life-giving power of the Spirit. 
In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.